You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of a collection of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled Freedom of Thought and Societal Forces, Implementing the Demands of Modern Society, Collected Works, Volume 333. This is the last lecture in the set, Lecture 6, entitled Spirit Cognition as a Basis for Action, given in Stuttgart on December 30th, 1919. About two years ago, as the catastrophic events of recent years were drawing to a close, the Friends of the College of Spiritual Science in Dornach decided to rename its building. You will immediately sense the significance of the new name, the Goetheanum. It expresses an awareness of German culture that will inspire us with the courage to confront any present and future challenges to that culture. <clears throat> and so the Goetheanum stands on a hill in northwest Switzerland as an emblem of a spirit that is truly international, and yet includes the significant element we associate with the name Goethe. With that reasoning in mind, perhaps I may be allowed to remind you of Goethe's thinking now and then in my lectures. I will begin today with an example that initially appears far-fetched, but in fact points to a characteristic aspect of our spiritual science. You may recall that Goethe undertook an exhaustive study of plants and animals after assuming his responsibilities in Weimar. In the mid-1780s, after years of observation and experimentation in Weimar and Jena, he traveled to Italy, where his ideas on the relationship between plants and the earth coalesced. In letters to friends at home in Weimar, he wrote that he was very close to fully understanding the archetypal plant, the motive, perceptible only in spirit, that unites and underlies all individual plant forms. In a noteworthy passage, he wrote that once having grasped this, quote, sensible, supersensible, close quote, figure, as he called it, we could then modify it to invent an infinite array of imaginary plants possessing all the inherent logic and necessity of plants that actually exist out there in meadows and woods and on the mountainsides. <coughs> when he wrote these words, Goethe sensed that his perception in this particular field of knowledge was approaching its peak. His statement tells us that he was attempting to develop a, quote, spiritually appropriate, close quote, as he put it, way of perceiving the natural world a means of acquiring knowledge which engages not only the senses and human intelligence, but also the entire spiritual aspect of the human being. This type of cognition submerges itself in the essence of living things, becoming one with them to such an extent that the creative energy manifesting in plant growth in the outer world and the living energy at work in creating the corresponding ideas in the human soul are experienced as being one and the same. 
Goethe was clearly aware of the growth force active in plants as they develop leaf by leaf, node by node, flower by flower. He wanted to connect with that creative force, to allow it to live in his own soul. His intention was to allow the forces inherent in outer objects to come alive in his conceptions of them. This approach to knowledge aspires to an extremely intimate sharing of experience with outer living things. By now our cognitive processes are very different, so we underestimate how greatly Goethe's effort to achieve living ideas has impacted humanity's striving for knowledge. Our spiritual science, however, intends to be, in quotes, Goethean, not in the sense of compiling anthologies of what Goethe said or wrote on scientific subjects, but by taking up and developing Goethe's initial elementary efforts so that they may become increasingly fruitful. The spirit that worked in Goethe continued to grow and develop even after he was dead to this world, and the possibilities for its further unfolding are very different now than they were at the time of his death in 1832. Goetheanism in 1919 does not need to rehash Goethe's literal words, but it must continue to work in the same spirit. This can best be done by expanding Goethe's efforts, which were limited to the field of botany and to a lesser extent zoology, into the impulse behind a comprehensive worldview that above all else includes the human being. This new Goetheanism will transform the worldview that is emerging from our culture's most respected, that is, scientific methods of acquiring knowledge. Let me refer back to earlier lectures and characterize civilized humanity's spiritual evolution over the last four centuries. During this period, intellectual, rational thinking emerged as the primary force in our collective development, and our striving for knowledge as the natural sciences experienced major triumphs and provided an abundance of scientific information on outer realities, our way of relating to the outer world, that is the inner process of shaping ideas about the natural world and about our life, became thoroughly intellectual. It is true that we enter a highly spiritual element when we allow ourselves to be guided primarily by the intellectual aspect of human nature. The abstract ideas and concepts we have cultivated over the last four centuries are inherently spiritual, but they are incapable of becoming anything more than reflections of outer sense-perceptible realities. The most characteristic element of modern soul-spiritual life is its gradual development of abstract, very finely differentiated ideas and concepts, which lack the inherent energy needed to approach anything beyond sense-perceptible reality. People who apply great mental effort to this intellectual approach often believe themselves to be totally free of any bias or presupposition in pursuing their lines of thinking or research. This activity, however, is by no means independent of historical developments. It is interesting to note that Many self-designated philosophers or scientists believe that human nature, 
or the nature of the world itself determine or require one or the other method of research, when in fact their methods are simply the outcome of a thousand years of human conditioning. Since the fifteenth century, we in the Western civilized world have been entirely devoted to intellectual thinking. We find its prelude in the last few centuries before Christ in the dialectics of ancient Greece. Dialectics involves the inner activation of an element of thought that leads to increasing abstraction. To an unbiased view of Greek life, this process, which was still very much imbued with spirit for Plato, but became mere logical activity for Aristotle, is clearly derived from an even older, completely soul-filled thinking. If we look back to the earliest period in the development of Greek thinking and culture, as Nietzsche did in a grandiose, if somewhat pathological way, calling it the, in quotes, tragic age of Greece, we discover that the abstract, dialectical, logical element is not yet present, nor is the exclusive focus on the outer world. <clears throat> that early stage of Greek culture still contained an element that can arise only out of innermost human nature, which presents in a great diversity of manifestations the essence of the world as if from within. If we look still further back in time for the origins of the intellectual logic that first began to appear in Greece, we find in the East a type of mystery cognition that is, in fact, mysterious only to modern humanity. Today, in our ordinary life, we no longer have any conception of this means of acquiring knowledge. In the schools of the ancient East that served simultaneously as art institutes and religious centers, individuals did not merely learn or apply their intellectual abilities to research. In the Eastern mystery centers, it went without saying that people embedded in ordinary life could not follow the path to the mysteries of existence. <clears throat> Before being allowed to approach these mysteries, students had to completely transform their inner constitution through rigorous inner self-discipline. They had to transform themselves into different beings fit to receive mystery knowledge. The ancient East cultivated a means of cognition based on rich, concrete soul-spiritual activity. This fact cannot be documented historically, but it can be confirmed by spiritual science. Eastern mystery activity spread to Europe, where it became increasingly filtered down into dialectics, logic, and mere intelligence in ancient Greece, and later, beginning around the middle of the 15th century, into the intellectualism of modern civilization. Without a complete inner view of these facts, we cannot make sense of the various currents in modern culture or their assets and liabilities, nor can we achieve fruitful perceptions of modern humanity's needs. It is time to take an uncompromising look at our spiritual history and recognize the spiritual worlds in which we are embedded. Having traced the line of development from the, in quotes, imported spiritual life of the East through Greece and into our modern intellectualism, 
we must now look at how this evolution occurred. It was possible only because it was linked to a natural facet of the human constitution, namely heredity or blood relationships. We must base any study of the evolution of human cognition on insights into the full scope of the influence of blood relationships. In the ancient times that produced the precursors of our modern cognitive processes, perception and knowledge were bound to heredity and appeared in different forms, in different races, ethnic groups, and other groups of people related by blood. The esoteric training of students admitted to the mystery schools had to be adapted to their bloodlines and inherited gifts and temperaments, which provided the natural basis for cultivating spiritual cognition. If we are aware of the real evolutionary history of humankind, in contrast to the fable convenu we now call history, we will discover that in the Western civilized world the ties binding human mental activity to blood ties were severed abruptly around the mid-1400s, when they began to be replaced by factors that can never be inherited. This change is apparent in all post-14th century art, which has emerged from sources of human mental activity totally unrelated to even the greatest of the nature-based, elementally-tinged accomplishments of earlier times. The difference is evident in many artistic media. The ancient Greeks were still aware that the creative energy at work in their culture in the work of Aeschylus, for example, or the philosophy of Heraclitus or Anaxagoras, was bound to the bloodlines of specific ethnic groups. We can confirm this relationship for ourselves by looking at artwork, such as typical Greek sculptures, which reveal three distinct physical types. The satyr, the mercury type, especially evident in all busts of mercury, and the type common to sculptures of Zeus, Hera, Athena, and Apollo. If you look carefully at the shape of the nose, ears, and all the other details of each of these three types, it will become obvious that the Greeks viewed the satyr and mercury types as inferior human bloodlines, and depicted Zeus as an example of superior humanity. These differences expressed the Greeks' sense of connection between spirituality and the natural, elemental, inherited factor in human evolution. <clears throat> this connection gradually loosened until it ceased to mean anything at all to humankind around the middle of the 15th century, when the intellectual element began to predominate in all normal outer manifestations of spirituality. Since that time our mental activity is no longer bound to heredity or blood relationships. Today even the pettiest philosophizers must admit that intellectual ideas no longer have anything to do with the fact of blood kinship which played such a major role in ancient spirituality. The highly attenuated, purely intellectual mental life that has evolved since the mid-1400s has taught us to become independent of the merely natural element, but it has also distanced us from everything once considered essential to being human. 
a unique and even tragic feature has entered humankind's evolution. We have risen to a level of experience that is independent of natural elemental forces, but these experiences no longer allow us to understand ourselves. In ancient blood-bound spirituality, inner insight naturally included knowledge of the essential nature of the human being. Now, however, we have risen to an abstract level of spirituality that experiences great scientific triumphs but is incapable of exploring human nature. Looking back on the stage of mental evolution that was based on natural elemental factors, we find that good or bad, sympathetic or antipathetic actions in human history were also expressions of blood-based means of experiencing spirit. Individuals experienced themselves and spirituality through their bloodline. Their blood supplied mighty images or imaginations of the spirit they experienced. These soul experiences then flooded their bodies and their ideas became deeds. But what about today? After three or four hundred years, intellectual development has culminated and the modern civilized world is full of the results of intense intellectual research. We find a great variety of ideas, but they have all become too abstract, too remote from life to transform into impulses for action. Today, when humankind's social and other problems have become acute, our souls seem to have fallen into a collective sleep that does not allow us to acknowledge that we are sliding down a slippery slope. The need for more profound inner forces that can inspire action is becoming urgent. Instead we hear abstract religious preaching that bears no relationship to real life, reminding us of the old folk song, quote, Sleep, Michael, sleep. In the garden goes a sheep. In the garden goes a little priest leading you to heaven. Sleep, Michael, sleep, close quote. We have lost any connection between perceiving the natural world around us, which has become a purely intellectual process, and perceiving the essential nature of the human being, which was formerly a natural part of ancient blood-based spiritual cognition. I know how reluctant people have become to hear such seemingly outlandish, fantastical and exaggerated descriptions. But if we are not willing to hear them, we will fail to develop fruitful ideas about how to renew and reorganize our life. To any unbiased view, such ideas are desperately needed. As for soul, as for spirit and soul, although our academic philosophers still talk about the human, in quotes, soul, in relationship to the outer world, any clear understanding of the human being as an entity of body, soul, and spirit has long since disappeared from our Western worldview. At this point we confront a very strange phenomenon. As I have said in many previous lectures, the triad of body, soul, and spirit is essential to understanding the true nature of the human being. The body serves as the spirit's instrument between birth and death. The soul is neither body nor spirit, but unites them both. Without a thorough grasp of this trinity, 
we cannot break through to a true understanding of the essence of human nature. Nowadays, however, even outstanding philosophers, who believe their scholarly efforts are unbiased, say that the human being consists of body and soul. They do not know that our intellectual activity is based on a long developmental history in the East. For example, in 869 A.D., the Eighth Ecumenical Council of Constantinople decreed that as Christians we must believe that the human being consists not of body, soul, and spirit, but only of a body and a soul with some spiritual attributes. From that time on, this statement became dogma in the Catholic Church and an underlying assumption in academic research. Today, people who believe they are conducting independent research are really simply following the edict of the Eighth Ecumenical Council of 869, which abolished the human spirit by decree. As a result of such influences, our mental activity has become so abstract and intellectual that it is no longer capable of engendering will impulses. In time, if our Western intellectual life becomes entirely materialistic, our ability to act will be completely paralyzed. The course of Western intellectual development must teach us the need for a spiritual renewal of our culture. We have lost any blood-bound insight into higher human nature and must now regain it from a different perspective. It was both necessary and right for humanity to spend three or four centuries developing the independent intellect. We achieved a certain freedom from natural constraints, but the resulting intellectualism must now be re-imbued with soul and spirit, with knowledge that informs and inspires human actions. Anthroposophical spiritual science has nothing to do with reviving the ancient methods of the East. Instead, it aspires to a modern means of learning about spirit. Anthroposophy wants to achieve a degree of intimacy with the life of the universe, which allows us to recognize the growth forces of the natural and spiritual worlds in our own bodies, as well as in plants and animals. If we imbue our intellectual activity with experiences of spirit, independent rather than blood-bound, spirit cognition will inspire and strengthen our actions. Human will and human actions would be paralyzed without the influence of spirit perception. It is simplistic to say that anthroposophical spiritual science retreats into the contemplative life to achieve its knowledge. So does chemistry. Chemists acquire their knowledge in classrooms and laboratories that are entirely separate from the practical applications of chemistry. The contents of real spiritual cog spirit cognition, which can tell us about the true nature of the human being, must still be acquired through individual self-transformation, although now in a completely different way than in the ancient mysteries. It is now time for us to learn spirit cognition, just as we learn to perceive with our senses and to reason with our intellect. Two lectures ago I talked about the need for intellectual modesty. It takes intellectual modesty to realize that as human beings involved in outer life between birth and death, we are not naturally equipped 
to enter the spiritual world. Approaching the real mysteries of the natural and spiritual worlds requires learning, just as five-year-olds must learn how to read. To the extent that we make use of our physical bodies, we are not adapted to the world of spirit. Experiencing this limitation is painful. Achieving real insight into human nature involves renunciation and the willingness to undergo painful experiences, as should be obvious from the fact that anyone capable of perception in the spiritual world is no longer looking at the world with ordinary eyes, hearing with ordinary ears, or thinking in the ordinary way. Spirit cognition requires an independent spiritual organism. While it is certainly true that entering the spiritual world involves practices that isolate us from life's outer turmoil, the achievements of our spiritual science do not deserve to be described as an otherworldly mysticism that is remote from or hostile to life. Knowledge gained through spiritual research, conducted in isolation, can be understood with healthy common sense and can inspire and inform human intentions and actions. By cultivating an all-embracing Gertian approach, anthroposophical spiritual science aspires to a form of spirit cognition that can serve as the foundation for energetic human action. That is the only way to help our world. Although intellectual knowledge is also acquired through inner effort, it applies at best only to technology, that is, to the non-human world. Impulses derived from spiritual knowledge, however, can guide our public life, which has grown so difficult in the direction of true recovery. Perhaps these claims of spiritual science deserve greater consideration in view of the infinite human suffering caused by failed so-called social movements such as Leninism, Trotskyism and the like, which are nothing more than intellectual poison. For four hundred years, intellectualism helped to free human beings to be individuals, but it served this useful purpose only as long as it did not attack old social forms. As soon as pure intellectualism seeks to transform society, its horrendous toxic effects become increasingly evident. It is a terrible illusion to believe that we can afford to look on world events dispassionately. These toxic effects are still in their early stages, and recovery can come only from spirit. Spirit cognition must become the basis of social renewal. I wish our opponents would take an uncompromising look at what is actually happening in our life, instead of issuing all kinds of sometimes well-meaning proclamations about how spiritual science should keep out of religion. For example, a Protestant clergyman who gave a lecture on anthroposophy here in Stuttgart reportedly said that although spiritual science may unearth all sorts of clairvoyant forces, it has nothing to do with the childish simplicity that a Christian view of religion requires. Only someone who has been abandoned by all the spirits responsible for humankind's evolution could utter such a statement. To those they have not abandoned, 
these spirits proclaim loudly and clearly that this abstract talk of uniting some indefinable something in the human being with the Christ, this misguided enthusiasm for the childlike element in religion, is what led to society's current woes in the first place. First, the element of soul and spirit was monopolized by religious denominations, and the result was a science that is devoid of spirit and presents a spiritless image of the natural world. And now, although they admit that spiritual science can reveal all sorts of spiritual realities, they ask us to avow that these realities have nothing to do with the divine nature we are supposed to be seeking in ourselves. The materialism of the natural sciences has done a good job of eliminating spirit from nature, and this type of religiosity will increasingly eliminate God from spirit. In the end we will be left with nature with no spirit, spirit with no God, and a religion with no content. A religion without content, however, cannot inspire actions. Without spirit cognition, our ethical impulses on behalf of Western culture are totally unfounded. Ethical impulses originate within and demand to be implemented in real life in a way that intellectual understanding does not, as a little unbiased self-observation will confirm. Ethical impulses or intuitions are very different from the intellectually formulated knowledge of modern science. Our modern intellectualism, however, is unable to bridge the gap between our understanding of nature and our ethical activity. What has become of our ethical worldview as a result? Apart from religious views that are more or less devoid of content, the only other worldview available to us has been cobbled together on the basis of the natural sciences, and as such it is highly one-sided, although at least honest. According to this view, our world, complete with human beings and other living things, gradually developed out of a primordial mist through certain combinations of vortex phenomena. But what about human ethical ideals and intuitions? If we believe in natural combinations as the sole origin of all things, ethical intuitions are mere epiphenomena that are valid only as long as people think they are. If the many old instincts remaining from earlier stages of human mental evolution were eliminated from our inner life and not replaced, we would have to resort to outer confirmation of our ethical ideals. Instead of feeling that we owe our ideals to the spiritual life that transcends all physical life, our motivation for action would simply be the desire to appear respectable in other people's eyes or to avoid breaking the law. In short, if the intellect remains dominant, we will lose any sense that our ethical activity is warmed and enthused by a soul-spiritual element. Ethical activity will be a reality only when spirit perception suffuses all of the mental processes we have acquired over the past three to four hundred years. <laughs> These remarks are not intended as reactionary criticism, 
They are simply meant to point out a real need. But what does spirit perception reveal? And what does it have to do with ethics? In the entire natural world, spirit perception sees the beginnings of what reasonable geologists, I use the term reasonable here in a relative sense, consider true of geological formations. These geologists say that a large part of the earth's surface is already in a state of decline, which means we are walking around on a dead entity. The presence of dead substance, however, is not limited to geology. Our culture is full of it, and recent science has focused exclusively on the non-living aspects of the natural world. We are gradually becoming surrounded by elements that date back to primeval stages of evolution and are in their final stage of existence in the earth phase of evolution. In contrast to these dying elements, our ethical ideals and intuitions, as revealed to anthroposophical spiritual science, are like the germ of the next plant that is already present in a dying flower, whereas the dying flower itself is the legacy of the earlier plant. In the natural world, we experience the dying legacy of earlier evolutionary phases. In the ethical ideals that come to life within us, we experience an element that will accompany human souls out into cosmic, eternal life when the earth is cast off like so much slag or like a collective corpse. By cultivating our ethical activity, we sow the seeds of future metamorphoses of the earth. Of course, this idea still seems preposterous to most modern human beings. But if we take it completely seriously and are fully aware of its depth, just imagine the impact it could have on our sense of moral responsibility. As human beings, we are products of the past, including all of the Earth's evolution. And as such, we are on the road to decline. The ethical impulses alive in us, however, are the seeds of a future that still seems unreal and abstract, but in fact these impulses are the earliest beginnings of an abundant reality to come. We must realize that if we fail to cultivate ethical activity, we transgress not only against our fellow human beings, but also against all of the spiritual worlds that have planted the seeds of the future in us in the form of ethical impulses. If you behave unethically, you are cut off from humanity's future. In addition to infusing our will and actions with strength, spirit cognition also lends our ethical activity a cosmically oriented sense of responsibility for our fellow human beings. In comparison, the thought horizon of educated ancient Greeks feels very limited. They were citizens of their city-states. In more recent times, America was discovered and the fact that the earth is round was rediscovered through direct experience. As a result, we become citizens of earth. Now it is time to take the first step. Today we are called upon to become citizens of the cosmos in the truest sense, to feel not only that we belong to worlds that exist outside of our own, yet form a whole with it, but also that we contribute to future worlds. Through spirit cognition, our ethical views gain new roots. We will be able to transform ethics 
into an active force for social change only when spirit cognition lends strength to our ethical activity. The methods I have suggested apply to the threefolding of the social organism as I describe it in Title Toward Social Renewal. The views expressed in that book are often held to be abstract or utopian, yet they are more realistic than any others. This is because they are based on a new understanding of reality that none of our natural sciences, infected as they are with intellectual thinking, can possibly achieve. The gradual development of intellectualism has thrown individuals back on themselves to an unprecedented extent. Today we see strange examples of how egotistical people become what they can no longer under... See, read that again. Today we see strange examples of how egotistic people, egotistical people become when they can no longer understand the natural world and the human being on the same basis. Together with intellectualism, egotism has pervaded all of our outer and inner life in the last three to four centuries. It has become especially apparent in religion, as an unbiased view is forced to admit. These centuries have taught us to think about the immortality of the human soul from a peculiarly egotistical perspective. Today, individuals tremble in fear of the possibility that they might cease to exist as soul-spiritual beings when their dead bodies are laid to rest. That is not what happens, of course, but people fear it nonetheless. Dogma forces us to focus entirely on life after death, the existence of which spiritual science fully corroborates, of course, while ignoring our existence as soul-spiritual beings in a spiritual world before conception and birth. The truth of the matter, however, is that before descending into the physical body provided through heredity, each of us undergoes a period of development in a world of spirit and soul just as we do here on earth. And just as life after death is a continuation of earthly life and builds on its experiences, the life we lead between birth and death is a continuation of life before birth. Being aware of life before birth arouses a totally different sense of responsibility, especially in teachers. It is no small matter to educate beings who descend from eternal spiritual heights into human bodies, which they then shape to their own purposes, more precisely with each passing year. Life before birth is the other half of the picture, the complement to the human soul's immortality after death, which we accept as a matter of course because it gratifies our egotistical desires. That is why spiritual science places so much emphasis on the fact that life here on earth is a continuation of the life we lived before birth or conception. Focusing exclusively on the afterlife makes it easy to avoid worldly responsibility. If we take life before birth equally seriously, we feel an obligation to lead an active and effective life on earth. Exclusive focus on the afterlife leads to a physical existence devoid of soul and spirit. But awareness of a previous existence in spirit before we descended into physical sense perceptible existence 
strengthens our will and pervades all of our life's activities. Only spirit perception offers a sound basis for human hopes for the future. Imbuing our intellectual nature with the results of spiritual science will bring effective will impulses back into human life on earth, which is now on the decline. Earlier generations could still rely on their instincts. In ancient Greece, for example, those who came of age and were ready to participate in public affairs simply needed to put their inherited instincts to use. Today, that is no longer possible. All culture would disappear if we attempted to rely only on our earthly instincts, which is what the socialism of Eastern Europe does. In effect, it is relying on nothing. If we pin our hopes on a socialism based on spiritual science, however, we are relying on something real. Of course, the perceptions and views I have presented here are not yet taken seriously by a large number of people, although some of our opponents take them seriously enough. For example, when I was still working in Dornach, I read in our magazine Dreigliederung des Sozialen Organismus, Threefolding the Social Organism, about a strange lecture given here in Stuttgart, complete with musical accompaniment, I believe by a canon of the Catholic Church. This lecture was based on systematic attacks by the Jesuit father Otto Zimmermann, which have appeared in almost every issue of the Jesuit publication Stimmen der Zeit, Voices of the Time. The lecturer said that Catholics, wanting to inform themselves about what Steiner says, should consult his opponent's writings, because the Pope has forbidden the reading of Steiner's own writings or those of his followers. The Roman Holy Congregation of July 18, 1919, issued a general edict forbidding the reading of theosophical and anthroposophical writings, at least according to Zimmermann's interpretation, and we cannot believe that the Jesuit father always lies. That he does lie at times is evident from his assertion that I am a former priest, a deserter from a monastery, when in fact I never belonged to any monastery. Later he retracted this statement, saying it can no longer be substantiated, a strange way to correct a lie. I do not, however, believe that he is lying about the edict forbidding Catholics to read my books. Clearly these opponents of ours have some inkling of the fact that anthroposophical spiritual science is attempting to introduce very real forces into modern life. In conclusion, let me make a comment that is both objective and personal. In the face of all resistance, and to the best of its ability, anthroposophical spiritual science must continue to stand for knowledge that supports our actions, our ethical and social endeavors, and the finest human hopes. Our opponents may succeed in muzzling spiritual science, but as soon as it regains even the slightest freedom, it will resume speaking out about the truth it recognizes as necessary for humanity. When the tide began turning in favor of the Allies, the Gertianum was there for the whole world to see, as testimony to an international culture unapologetically based on further development of a Gertian approach rooted in Germanic culture. Similarly, in spite of all obstacles, anthroposophical spiritual science will continue to fight for the perceptions and knowledge that shape its convictions. 
This content, although rooted in Central Europe, belongs to the whole world. Thirty years ago, in my first attempt to describe what the Germanic character needs, in order to regain its best spiritual sources of strength, I wrote these words as an exhortation to the German people. Quote, in spite of all the progress we note in various fields of cultural activity, we cannot deny that the signature of our times leaves much to be desired. For the most part our progress has been characterized by breadth rather than depth, whereas an era's gains are judged entirely on the basis of their depth. Perhaps the proliferation of events that threaten to overwhelm us will make us understand that at the moment we have forfeited depth of vision for the sake of breadth. We can only hope that the frayed threads of progressive development will soon be joined together again and that we will be able to grasp new realities on the basis of the spiritual heights we once achieved. Thirty-five years ago, I sensed that a catastrophe was bound to occur if no legitimate spiritual resurgence developed to counteract this all-time cultural low. This feeling gnawed at my heart as I wrote these words and sent them to press. The course of events over the last three and a half decades vindicates my decision to sound the call for spirituality. May this call not go unheard again. May the German people hear it now and in the near future. May they turn to spirituality to undo the terrible damage of recent years. In fact, the destruction is only beginning and will certainly continue unless we turn to the Spirit in our efforts to rebuild our society and culture. Today, let us appeal to the German people's will to cultivate spirituality. We are quite justified in issuing this appeal because there can be no doubt that we will find spirituality if we simply look for it. As I said recently, the events of the last few decades suggest that the German people have no talent for materialism, whereas the spirit of centuries of German cultural development confirms our talent for spirituality. The call to spirituality must evoke a sense of great responsibility in us. May we con- become conscious of this responsibility in a way that allows us to contribute to humanity's evolution again by acting on our spiritual impulses. May we sustain, maintain, and augment the accomplishments our greatest minds bestowed on a fortunate humanity for many centuries. The end of Lecture 6 and the end of this set of lectures, Freedom of Thought and Societal Forces, Implementing the Demands of Modern Society, Collected Works, Volume 333.